You're listening to the Assembly of Yahweh Sermon Podcast, recorded in Cisco, Texas. For more information, please visit hallelujah.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're having a blessed Sabbath. I must admit, this feels pretty good because we were at the Family Builders Conference and coming up from my background, this is like a security blanket for me. They gave me this little bitty podium, and I think, um, I'm pretty sure that Keith sabotaged it because every time I would stand up and touch it, it would fall down. We were at the Family Builders Conference. So when they rolled this thing out, I said, man, this is nice. This feels really good. This gives me something I can hold on to. But I appreciate uh, the wonderful worship service so far. Um, I appreciate um, Keith's message last Shabbat uh, dealing with unity, even in the midst of diversity. And it brought me back to a time of the beginning of my journey when the Father began to reveal uh, the truth of his word to us. And I want to share a little bit about that with you. It may be redundant to some of you, but I'll open up with a a passage of scripture. Um, Brother Keith talked a lot about uh, differences in belief And I want to share with you a little bit about belief itself. And a question that that Yahweh really challenged me with, a very simple question would be the, the essence of this message is what does it mean to believe, really? Not about particular nuances of belief, but faith itself what does it mean to believe, really? For Hebrews 11.1, 1, in the version of the scripture says, and belief is the substance of what is expected, the proof of what is not seen. Now, some versions say it's the, uh, it's the substance of things hoped for, uh, in which comes from a Greek word, Alpizo, which means, uh, comes from root word, uh, Greek root word 1680, which means joyful or confident expectation. Not the hope that we hope it rains tomorrow or, uh, or we hope we have a good day at work, a good week of work next week, but rather it's an expectation, a joyful expectation that, that belief or faith is, is the substance of what is expected or hoped for evidence of things unseen. The scriptures teach us clearly uh, a very popular and familiar verse of scripture that we read, for Yahweh so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Very, very popular verse, John three sixteen, And also we have John 1, 12 says, but as many as received him, he gave power to become the sons of Elohim, even to them that believe on his name. John 1.12. 1 John 5.13. And these things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of Yahweh, that you may know you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of Yahweh. 1 John 5.13. We notice the need to believe in him, Yeshua, as a necessity for eternal life. 
or what is commonly referred to as salvation. The question then is, to what extent must we believe in order for our belief or faith to be credited to us for righteousness? What does it mean to believe, really? In other words, when we look at a biblical answer to this question, we find in the book of Romans, verse 3, for what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed Yahweh, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. One must then ask the question, to what extent did Abraham believe Yahweh for it to be counted to him for righteousness? As always, we're looking to the Scripture for the answers to our questions. And to answer this question, I want to ask you to follow along with me as we look in the book of Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to quickly read verses 1 through 14. And it came to be after these events that Elohim tried Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, now your only son, Isaac, to whom you love and go into the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains in which I command you. And Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place in which Elohim had commanded him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from a distance. So Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go over there and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I I am, my son. And he said, See the fire in the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, Elohim does provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And the two of them went together. And they came to the place in which Elohim had commanded him, and Abraham built a slaughter place there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the slaughter place upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from the heavens and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy, nor touch him. For now I know that you fear Elohim, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and saw behind him a ram caught in the bush by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of this place Yahweh Ireh. And he said, it is said to this day, on the mountain, Yahweh provides. If one looks into this 22nd chapter of Genesis, we would see that Yahweh tested Abraham's faith in verse 1 and 2 by commanding Abraham to offer Isaac unto Yahweh as a burnt offering. And in verses 3 through 5 of Genesis 22, we see that Abraham's faith or belief or his trust was so strong in Yahweh that he, Abraham, proceeded to make preparations and travel to the place that Yahweh told him to perform the duty of his son's sacrifice unto Yahweh. 
In verses 6 through 10 of Genesis 22, we see there that Abraham proceeded to fulfill or to complete the task of sacrificing his son Isaac, just as Yahweh had told him to do. Now, an interesting point to notice is that if we back up there and look closely at verse 5, we notice the words that Abraham spoke uh, to the two men uh, that were with him. Abraham said, abide here with the donkey. I and the lad go yonder to worship and will return to you. Now, Abraham knew at this point that he had been commanded to sacrifice Isaac. So why would Abraham tell the two men that they, both he and the son, would return? The answer, of course, is not, uh, is not that Abraham was lying to the young man, but rather the answer was that Abraham believed Yahweh so much that even if he had permitted him to slay him, because he knew the promise that had been made to him, he knew that Yahweh would raise him again from the dead. We find this evidence from in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. So now I'd like to ask just a few questions that I'd like to share with you. I'm talking a lot about belief or faith at its base root here. Um, and why is it such a big deal? Why is it so important? The answer is because it, at the, it is at the very heart of the gospel or the good news because it has everything to do with one's salvation. There are subjects that, uh, and nuances of Scripture that uh, are disputable matters, but this is not one of them. If there is one thing that we must understand about the Scripture... It is the relationship of salvation to that of faith and works. I believe it's one of the most detrimental problems that we have as a general uh, general census in what is known in in biblical faith, uh, whatever banner it falls under, whether it falls under the title of Christianity. And I know people have uh, uncomfortable feelings about that title, but it has everything to do with uh, the expectation of salvation regarding the relationship uh, of salvation to that of faith and works. Because if there is any hope for any of us, it lies in the understanding of how one is redeemed. We have labeled the age-old debate as the relationship between faith and works, as if the two are separate, but that is an inaccurate title to the struggle. A more accurate title to the struggle would be the relationship between salvation and works. Because where salvation is found, works, fruit, action will be found. I want to share with you a few illustrations on the subject that I would call the relationship between salvation and works found in the Old Testament. One we've already read and I'm going to share with you and ask you a couple of questions They're going to be familiar stories to you, so there'll be no need to be redundant and to repeat them again. But uh, the first one that I want to share with you and ask you a few questions is regarding Genesis 22 that that I just read and the story of Abraham offering Yitzhak or Isaac as a burnt offering. Number one, I ask, was Abraham saved or was he considered or counted righteous because he offered Isaac? The answer is no. Next, would Abraham have been considered righteous or counted righteous if he had not been willing to offer Isaac? 
Again, the answer is no. So then how was Abraham counted righteous? By faith. You see, there was no saving power in Abraham's actions. If Abraham would not have offered Isaac, then it would have been made manifest or it would have been made known, made apparently known that his faith in Yahweh was dead or false, proving he did not truly believe Yahweh. James 2.17 says, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. In the second account, we're going to talk about the Passover account in Exodus 12. I don't need to read you the story, but I ask you the question is, was there any saving power in that mortal lamb's blood on the side of, that, on the, side of the post and on the upper door post of the house? No. But would the firstborn, in the, in the other half of that question, would the firstborn children of the Israelites have been saved or would they have been rescued from Egyptian bondage if they had not applied that blood as Yahweh had instructed them to do? No. So again, so how they were spared from the death angel and rescued that night is the same way by faith and belief. Again, you see, there was no saving power in the Lamb's blood. If they had not done as Yahweh had instructed through the prophet Moses, their children would have died and they would have not have been redeemed or rescued from bondage because it would have been made manifest that they did not truly trust in Yahweh with all their heart and lean not on their own understanding, according to Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Another story that's very familiar Genesis 6 through 8, the story of Noah and the ark. Questions would, would come as, was there saving power in Noah building that boat? No. But yet would Noah and his family have been saved from death in, this, in the flood waters if he had not built the ark just as Yahweh had instructed him to do? No. So then, Noah again, and his family was saved by faith. Once again, there was no saving power in the ark itself. If Noah had not built the boat just as Yahweh had instructed him to do, Noah and his family, along with all living creatures of the earth, would have drowned in that flood, proving that Noah did not truly believe or trust in or have faith in Yahweh. Thinking back upon uh, James chapter 2, verse 22, in the record of Abraham, in which he said, you see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was perfected. James 2, 22. One important thing to notice is that Abraham's faith was made perfect or mature. It does not say that his salvation was made complete. So back to the question is, to what extent must one believe or trust in Yahweh through our Master and Messiah Yeshua to know that we have eternal life? This tends to be an age-old question that's been, that's been going on and on for years and years, but the answer is that we're simply asking the wrong questions. As I've already mentioned the second chapter of James, the Bible teaches us of two different kinds of faith or belief in Yahweh. One that produces salvation 
and one that does not. There's two words worthy to mention here. Two words uh, that we can that we can take a look at. One being the word fiducia, and the other being the word essentia. Essentia faith and fiducia faith. Essentia is a mental ascent, the mental acknowledgement of something or someone's existence. The demons acknowledge and believe to the point of tremble. But fiducia is more than a mental acknowledgement. It involves a trust in something, a giving over to it, a complete believing and acceptance of something. This is the kind of faith that one must have in Messiah Yeshua. A believer, therefore, has fiducia faith, that is. He has a real faith and trust in Yeshua. Not simply an acknowledgement that he lived here upon earth at one time. Another way to put this is that there are many people in the world who believe that Yeshua lived, proclaim him as Savior, but no change in their life um, at any time indicates or verifies their claims to faith. This is essentia faith, a head knowledge. Any number of public confessions of, the, of his belief, no matter how loud, will not change this fact. Essentia does not lead to action. It does not lead to works. Fiducia does. Essentia is not of the heart. Fiducia is. There is. Therefore, it is evident that faith of the heart, fiducia faith, is a requirement for salvation. What you do reveals what you believe about Yahweh, regardless of what one may say. Your trust in Yahweh will will determine what you do and how you live. I want to share with you something that uh, I don't even know where... I, this happened so many years ago for me that I can't even remember exactly how it was given to me. And I don't remember if it was uh, a dream or, or what it was, but um, I was struggling. As I began to study out my faith, I, I was struggling with the differences in what I had always been taught my whole life versus what I was now seeing in Scripture. And trying to make sense because the words works and the words faith could not go they were incompatible in my mind because of the uh, the learned pattern of thought that I had received my whole life those two ideas were incompatible the idea of works and faith they just could not go together and a little parable came to mind I'll call it a parable because at its root, a parable is simply this. A parable is a, an earthly story to reveal a spiritual truth. That's the basis of a parable. And I want to share with you a small parable that was given to me many years ago. And though it may seem corny at the moment, I'm going to ask you to entertain me for a moment and I'm going to ask you to play along. You see, there was an acrobat who had sent out all these flyers all over town. And he had advertised that he was going to stretch a tight wire across a big canyon 
outside of town. And he said there would be no charge. He was just inviting everyone to come out and watch the event. He was going to walk this tight wire across this high canyon with no safety equipment. So the time come and the entire town come out to watch. Now we all know it's in our human nature. It's just kind of like watching NASCAR. A lot of people don't care anything about watching cars go around in a circle for 500 miles. They're looking for some excitement and that's what they were looking for that day. They showed up to watch this acrobat walk this tight wire and without hesitation, he jumps upon the tight wire, waves at the crowd and walks several hundred feet across this canyon without, without a flaw. Walks to the other side and has fulfilled his duty. The crowd cheers him on and he U-turns and he comes back across the tight wire, across the canyon a second time. And when he lands safely upon the ground, the crowd cheers him on and he says, wait a minute, nobody leave. And he runs around the edge of the crowd and he runs into a utility trailer for his equipment and he comes out pushing a wheelbarrow. And you being the crowd... Myself being the acrobat, and I ask, how many you have seen me walk this tight wire not one time, but two times? How many of you believe that I can push this wheelbarrow across this canyon on this tight wire? How many of you would believe that? I get a hand here. Thank you for the one of you who has faith. A few of you have faith. I said, okay, fantastic. Now what I need is a volunteer to ride in the wheelbarrow. Now come the questions. If all those hands quickly found their way back into their pocket, if no one in the crowd was willing to get into that wheelbarrow, how many of them had full confidence that he could do what he asked? How many of them actually believed he could push that wheelbarrow across that canyon? And if your answer is no, how is that any different from people who make a profession of faith, who profess they are believers, but don't walk according to the scripture? We're not talking about walking in ignorance, but I'm talking about when you come across scripture and when you read it for yourself and you see what the scripture says clearly to do. When the scripture calls upon you to act, you're at a crisis of belief. We all know we've either, we either are, we either have been, or we know people who acknowledge Yeshua or profess to be a believer, but do not have spiritual fruit. The action that verifies their belief. A major theme throughout the scripture that I found from the very beginning to the end was a simple theme. People do what they believe and they believe what they do. And if you don't do, verifies you don't believe. That's why many perished in the wilderness because of unbelief. Faith and belief isn't real unless it affects one's actions when something is at stake. So in that light, would you say that you really believe that Yeshua 
is worth losing everything for. Like the Bible describes in so many places. Is it worth losing the job? Possibly losing family. Or in my case, in the beginning of this walk, losing what I consider to be an entire ministry. Luke 14, 26-27 says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters and yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now the life application here is not that Yahweh calls upon us to hate. Matter of fact, he calls upon us to love. But the lesson here is that we must put Yahweh first above everything else and all things. As I've often said, that we must realize that upon our heart there's a throne and it's a one-seater. It's not a love seat that he sits on the throne. Matthew 14, or Matthew 16, 24 through 26 says, And then said Yeshua unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Again, life application to this is that we must put away our selfish desires and put Yahweh's will at the top priority in our life. Verse 26 ends in the profound question, what would a man give in exchange for his own soul? Luke 9, 61 and 62. And another also said, Master, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my home. And Yeshua said unto them, No man having put his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of Elohim. Now understanding the context and the cultural setting in which that statement was made, that sounds kind of cold for us in America. He just said he wanted to go home and tell his family goodbye. Seemed like Yeshua said something pretty cold to him. He said, any man who puts his hand to the plow looking back is not fit for the kingdom. But we must understand in the cultural setting that when a man left home, he would go home and they would usually throw a big party, a big farewell party that sometimes would last for a week. Sometimes it would involve an entire, it would entire the family, sometimes an entire little community. And in which many times, a lot of promiscuity and uh, a lot of times there was a lot of alcohol involved. And in other words, basically what Yeshua was saying was if you're going to go back there and do that, you're going to be looking over your shoulder the whole time at what you left behind. And any man who puts his hand to the plow cannot plow a straight row. You're not fit. For the kingdom. That's really what he was saying. The life application is that we're to fix our eyes upon Messiah Yeshua, push forward and never look back in effort to eliminate all distraction, to place our complete trust in him and strive to live our lives in a way that would be pleasing to Yahweh 
clarifying, not in an effort to try to earn our salvation. But we do it out of gratitude and love for Yahweh, for the gracious salvation that has been provided, that has been offered, that has been extended to us while we were yet sinners. Messiah died for us. We must notice what the Scriptures say about identifying signs or descriptions of true believers versus non-believers. John 14, 21 says, He that hath my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. 1 John 2, 3-5 says, And hereby... We do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He that says, I know Him, and keeps not or guards not His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. But whosoever keeps His word, in Him verily is the love of Yahweh perfected. Hereby know that we are in Him. You see, the disciples' life is a lifelong sanctification growth process. Yahweh does not expect us to live a sinless life. Psalms 103 verse 14 says that He knows our frame and He considers that we're made of dust. Because if it were possible for us to live a sinless life, there would have been no need for a Messiah. To die and to pay the price for our sin. The Bible teaches us that we are to walk as He walked. To live our life with all all of our might. By using the life of Yeshua as our example. As our excuse. To strive to live a holy life. Oftentimes the world portrays uh, an idea that because we are flesh, why try? And we use the excuse of our flesh not to strive to live for Him rather than using His example as motivation to live for Him. Could you imagine what this world might look like? If everyone committed their whole life to walk as Yeshua did, understanding the salvation that we have is threefold. My whole life, and and probably where maybe some of you may have come from, you were taught that 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 salvation was a one-time momentary event that took place in your life, whether it be uh, as it was in the way that I grew up where you walk down an aisle and you, you pray a prayer and it's over and said and done and everything's good to go from there. But rather, 
salvation we have is a threefold process that I described threefold. It's past, it's present, and it's future. Number one is when I place my faith and trust in Yeshua to take my place. I was justified. I was saved from the penalty of my sin. But I'm also present. I am being saved. The process of sanctification in which I am being saved from the power of sin in my life. And last but not least, the future tense that one day I will ultimately be saved in which I will be saved, hallelujah, from the very presence of sin. And it's very important that we understand all three of those phases. That way we can have joy and the shackles of sin have been loosed from us that we have been given by His Spirit. We're given the power to overcome sin in our life. And because we have been set free, we should live the life of example for a world to see and lift up His name both in word and in deed. And when we do those things and we lift Him up, He said, I'll draw men unto Myself when I am lifted up. And we'll be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And my prayer is that that you, when you go into the workplace, wherever you go, whoever you meet, that the glory and the joy will shine through you. Not that you would be seen, but so that everyone around you may ask, what is different about them? And it will attract them. And just like Brother Keith was talking about, about unity and diversity, about how that we... uh, we stay to the main things and we, and we focus on those, those basic tenets of our faith and all that other washes away. And that we know most, first and foremost, that love shines through. Speaking the truth in love, drowned it. Drowned in grace. Offering grace to those around us who may not be on the same walk or have the same understanding that we do at this point. Because each of us are on a journey. We're all on the same path. Some of us may just be at different places along the way. But most of all, be warm and inviting and loving. Never veering from the truth, but speaking the truth in love. Because that's what Yeshua said would be the marker. He said, this is how they will know that you are mine if you love one another. And love covers a multitude of sin. In a closing thought, 
The questions remain. Have you placed your complete faith and trust in Yeshua as Messiah? Examine yourself. The Scriptures command us, examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. But if you've not made that decision, if you've not made, if you've not come to the conclusion that Yeshua is the Messiah, I would urge you to search that out and to do so. For 2 Corinthians 6.2, Yahweh's Word says, Today is the day. If you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. I pray a blessing upon this congregation and everyone who stands today, whether it be here or across the world, on this Sabbath day to speak from the Word, that they would be anointed with power, clarity of mind, and liberty of speech. I pray that Yahweh would bless you, keep you, and may you be a city upon a hill. Yahweh bless you.